You are listening to the Sermon Podcast from the Vandalia Church of Christ in Lubbock, Texas. We are a community that believes in the value of all people. You can find out more about us at www.vandalia.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Vandalia Church. Okay, so this is what's known as Epiphany Sunday. Um, in the West, uh, in Western churches, the, the focus tends to be on what's known as the visit of the Magi. Uh, in Eastern churches, like Orthodox churches, the focus is on uh, Jesus' baptism. Um, we're going to talk about the passage in Matthew 2, uh, where the three, or actually we don't know how many of them there were, but when the, the Magi visited um, Jesus. What I want to start with, though, is I want you to notice how Matthew's gospel does not begin. Matthew's gospel does not begin with an argument. Matthew's gospel does not begin with sort of neutral ground, an attempt to demonstrate from there, from that neutral ground, that belief in God's existence and belief in Jesus as the Messiah is the most rational choice. In other words, Matthew's gospel isn't really an effort in like apologetics. Matthew's gospel is, is framed simply with proclamation and worship. It's bookended with the declaration that God is for us and with us, always and forever. This is the good news. Matthew begins with a list, a list of names. His opening move in an epic story is to offer this list. An account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, it begins. The son of David, the son of Abraham. He names Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Names David and Solomon and Rehoboam. But he also names Tamar and Ruth and Rahab and the wife of Uriah, as he puts it. This one is from the line of God's covenant with Israel. He's from the royal line of kings. And he's from the line of two prostitutes and a foreigner who married in and a couple of adulterers. It's a strange and stunning way to begin a book that's meant to generate support and justification for the identification of Jesus of Nazareth as Israel's long-awaited Messiah. Especially considering the fact that by this point there are lots of questions and challenges against this idea. Against the notion that this one could possibly be the Messiah. Notice that this list is strange, not just because of the fact that the writer mentions these four women in the context of a deeply patriarchal society, but that by mentioning these women he's also saying something about everybody else in the line. They contributed just as much, those men, 
contributed just as much to the failure, to the corruption that shapes this family heritage. The Christ, Matthew tells us at the very start of the book, the Anointed One, Emmanuel, God with us, is from a line of people filled with flaws and failures and corruption and deceit. It's a very odd way to get started. You can sort of imagine this text being read in a very formal context for the first time. They're all gathered together waiting expectantly to hear what's been written about Jesus' life and story. And as the reader opens their mouth, this is what the audience hears. Prostitution, lies, cheating, adultery, and murder. This would be shocking. From the start, Matthew is subverting expectations. He's overturning the worldview of those who expect something else, those who expect a different type of Messiah. And that same subversion is at work in all sorts of ways, overt and subtle ways throughout the book. The same pattern, in fact, shows up in the second chapter. It says, In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star at its, at its rising and have come to pay him homage or come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all of Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judea, of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and lured from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word so that I may go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out. And there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. As in any good story, a conflict is set up at the start. The conflict here is between the power structures in place in Israel around the beginning of the first century, including Herod the Great. As many powerful political leaders have been since then, Herod was a megalomaniac. He had worked very hard to gain his position to legitimate himself in the eyes of the Jewish people. He tried even to ban public protests and opposition against him. His first concern was with maintaining his own power and status, making sure that all threats and opposition were eliminated. I think I've mentioned before 
that he was known to have hired secret agents who would move among crowds and investigate to see whether they were really as supportive and praising of him as he thought they should be. He was known for his brutality and cruelty. In this text, he serves as a counterexample, a foil, a contrast with the wise men. But it's more than just a contrast between the character of these different figures. What Matthew is doing, he's beginning to highlight a broader conflict between all the official sources of authority and wisdom and power in Israel. A contrast between that and the work that God is doing in the strange story of Jesus, the Messiah. Herod is a maniac and a narcissist. In his opposition, we see a conflict between the powers that be and the powers that work in this small house in Bethlehem. We see a conflict, and we see echoes of earlier conflicts between the religious authorities, the teachers and leaders, the wise men of Jerusalem, and these Persian or Babylonian sages from the east. Unlike the political and religious authorities in Jerusalem, these foreign astrologers are able to locate and identify God's anointed one. As one commenter put it, the the magi are Gentiles in the extreme. Characters who couldn't be more remote from Jewish citizens in Jerusalem, in heritage and worldview. They couldn't be more different. They couldn't be more foreign. Why is this so important? Well, the the commenter makes this clear also. He says, even at the beginning of Jesus' life, we we see the dividing walls between races and cultures breaking down. Even here at the beginning of the gospel, the mission to all nations, which will close the gospel, is anticipated. In other words, what we have here in chapters 1 and 2 are the the first of, of two bookends, which will provide an overarching framework and shape to the whole story. We see in these foreign sages a thread that Matthew will weave throughout the entire book and which helps us to make sense of the whole thing. One thing Matthew's doing here is working in a thread that that shows up in the prophets. A new age of peace and wholeness, mercy and life will dawn and all the nations will come. Their kings will bring gifts. Their people will be drawn to this light. In the Magi, in the wise men, we see this coming to fulfillment. In their journey, in their success in finding him, in their offering and their worship, they also offend against the governing authorities in Jerusalem. If anybody's going to know where, when, and how to find God's anointed one, after all, it would have been them, not a bunch of outsiders who aren't even Jewish, a part of God's covenantal people. And yet it's them, and not the scribes and Pharisees, Matthew says. It's them who are both willing and able to seek, out, seek him out and recognize him when they see him. And this helps us to see that Matthew is not just setting up and highlighting a conflict. He's also establishing the kind of Messiah that we find in Jesus. The kind of king and kingdom that's inaugurated at his birth. And that's the key to the whole story. But I'd want to step back for a second. 
a little self-reflection, I think, reveals, at least to me, if I'm honest, that I'm inclined to read this story so that I come out as one of the heroes. That's the way I like to always read every story. I admire and I find myself leaning into the story of the wise men, of course. I find myself prone to identify with them. If I had been alive around the turn of the first century, I too would have made the great journey. I too would have seen the light and followed it to a a small, unassuming home in in the tiny town of Bethlehem. I too would have bowed down before him and offered him precious gifts. I too would recognize my lowly place in the world. I think most people who read this story tend to read it in that way. We like to think of ourselves as standing in for the wise men. We look down contemptuously on those blind Pharisees, on the self-centered King Herod. And there is something to that. Matthew's clearly trying to highlight their blindness and affirm the idea that Jesus is indeed the Anointed One, God with us. But it's also important to, to acknowledge that the scribes and Pharisees didn't recognize him when he arrived, not because they were particularly or extraordinarily vicious or malicious or stupid, necessarily, but simply because the Messiah, God's anointed one, is hard for most of us to recognize, even harder for us to worship. You might be thinking, he's neither difficult nor uh, he's neither difficult to recognize nor difficult to worship. We're all here doing it right now. It's a piece of cake. You might be thinking that, and you would be wrong. It's easy to convince ourselves that we recognize him and his claim on our lives. It's easy to convince ourselves that we see in him the one who's worthy above all else, above all others, of our absolute devotion and trust. But I think if we look at the guiding principles and priorities of our society as a whole and of our lives as individuals, we might find something different. If a stranger were to come and look inside my mind and my heart, if that stranger were to look deep into the systems that define our lives as individuals and groups and communities, and they were tasked with answering those same questions, what do they look to for salvation? What do they worship? What would they come up with? What would that stranger see? Would they see a community of people whose lives are living sacrifices, as Paul puts it when he's summarizing Christian worship in Romans 12? If that stranger were able to look past the surface, to see down into the depths of our souls, what would they discover makes us most afraid and anxious? What would they discover gives us the greatest joy and delight? I think if we're honest... They would see people more in love with their things, more in love with their success and their security than with their neighbors. In Matthew 2, we see lives that provide radically different answers to those questions about worship and love and devotion. For Herod, God's working and presence is a threat. It's all interpreted primarily through the lens of his own self-image, his own self-concern, maintaining his grip on power. Not only is he unwilling to move and look himself, he wants this threat to be eliminated when it is found. In contrast to him, we have the magi, the wise men, 
these foreigners, Gentiles, outsiders, who are willing to go to great lengths to seek out this one that's worthy of their worship and honor and homage. They show real reverence. They truly recognize him for who he is, and they respond accordingly. We see Herod, a man hungry for power, trying to legitimize himself, feigning devotion and humility and faith, but really a brutal, cruel, deceitful egomaniac. The question that drives his life, the question that, dr- that drives his every waking thought and choice is what might this cost me? Or what can I gain from this? For the Magi, the question that drives them across the known world is how much can I offer to this one who is most worthy? And it's not just that they find him and recognize him, but that they act in light of that recognition. They give him these valuable gifts. Though the point isn't really in the value. This is not a sermon about um, increasing your contribution. Um, the point isn't in the value of the gifts. The point is in that has to do with what these particular gifts signified. By giving these particular gifts... They were making a declaration. They were proclaiming something about this one on the receiving end of the gifts. They were declaring that he was royalty. These are gifts that you give to a king. They were declaring that this is the king of Israel, that this kingdom had been inaugurated through the birth of this child, and that the world was different than it would be in his absence. And by doing this, they point the way to a Messiah that none of us expects, but all of us need. This anointed one whose life is rooted in reckless, sacrificial love, whose kingdom overturns all our efforts to sustain ourselves by ruthless power and selfish desire. And we're called once again to fall on our knees, to offer our lives as living sacrifices to this one whose love passes all understanding. I want to close by reading Romans 12, where I think a lot of these themes come together. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and not all members have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members one of another. Let's pray together. God, we praise your holy name. You are the Holy One. You have made us and you have remade us. You've given us all the good things that we possess. We pray that you would illuminate our minds so that we may know you more. Soften and open our hearts so that we may love you and our neighbors more. 
Open our eyes and our ears so that we can see and hear your work and your call in our lives. Pray that you would teach us how to be um, transformed and undone through the working of your Spirit in our lives. Pray that you, that you would transform us more and more into the image of your Son. Pray all things through his name. Amen.